You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Stu Landsberg, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so you are the founder of Grove Collaborative. How do you describe Grove these days? So Grove, I describe Grove, you know, a little bit differently every time, but Grove is a company <laughs> whose mission is to help every family create a home that reflects the best of themselves. And the way we do that is through a commerce platform for natural home and personal care products that makes it really easy for every family to find products that are safer for their family and better for the environment. We curate the best third-party national brands and also have a portfolio of brands that we own and have developed ourselves. Um, the business is split about 50-50 between third-party brands and brands we own ourselves and go to market directly to consumer all, you know, all through e-commerce. And that allows us to do some things that are really unique in our space and I think consumer-friendly and also progressive from a sustainability perspective. I have to give a big ups to Mika Hollander, who's been on the show. Um, she's the founder of Sustain. Her father, Jeff, uh, who is the founder of Seventh Generation, was also on the show uh, in the past, I don't know, 30 or so episodes. You recently acquired Mika's company, Sustain. First of all, how do you, how do you, <laughs> how do you know Mika? What was, uh, you know, can you remember when you met her and, and what led up to you ending up acquiring her company? Yeah, well, she didn't really stand out there. All these people who started condom companies with their dad. And so it was quite eaten <laughs> um, That's true. So the, the, it's a funny story. So I have always, you know, cared a lot about this category, but when I was a kid, my dream job was to be the CEO of Seventh Generation. I swear to God, that's true. Wow. I was like eight years old and I thought Seventh Generation was the biggest company in the world. You know, as an eight-year-old, you're like, okay, well, there's one skew from Coca-Cola in your fridge and like one skew from Ford in your driveway. And there's like 20 products from Seventh Generation. So that must be the biggest company in the world. And I was a very precocious eight-year-old. And so, you know, when I first got to meet Jeffrey, Mika's dad, the founder of Seventh Generation, it was, I was like a... You know, some people get excited when they meet rock stars. I was like excited to meet Jeffrey and got to know Mika because he is natural. kind of a rock star. Though. Totally a rock star. <laughs> totally a rock star. Yeah. Inspired protagonist. I big fan of Jeffrey's. But when I first met Mika, I mean, she was just getting started with Sustain. We were just getting started with Grove. And, you know, I've always, I think, had a connection to her as a conscientious entrepreneur and someone who, you know, wants to change the world for the better and have always had a lot of respect for both what she does and the way that she has built the sustained company, not just the sustained brand, prioritizing not just, hey, what's going to sell, but you know what's going to be best for consumer and best for the environment every step of the way. And so Mika and I had known each other for, gosh, half a decade um, before we, we ever talked about acquiring sustained. I, there, I, I have two like very different branching topics here. One is I want to take a detour quickly on what was your upbringing uh, and your parents kind of that that led you all to have so many uh, seventh generation products in the garage in the <laughs> in the home. Fair question. Um, I think my parents, you know, were a little bit ahead of their time in terms of thinking about sustainability. Uh, you know, I thought it was normal that paper towels were brown because you know back in the 80s and 90s, like all recycled paper towels were brown and unbleached, and mm -hmm. that every family had a you know, compost bin in the backyard with like several families of rats that would run around and you like 
you don't go play near the compost bin. I thought that was just normal. And yeah. one of the things that caused me to start Grove actually is as I you know left the nest and went down into the cold real world, I saw that a lot of people were making decisions that were less in line with the conscientious values that I believe really everyone does hold. And certainly for me, uh, you know, I grew up in this atmosphere where, you know, I, I thought of myself as a good person, someone who cared about the environment, et cetera. And the products around me sort of reflected that. And then when I was working after college and sort of bought the products that were convenient, found myself having this terrible cognitive dissonance every time I washed the hand, washed my hands, did the dishes, did the laundry, because the products that I was using didn't match the ones that you know were a part of my identity. What, so where, where was it that you grew up? I grew up in northern Westchester County in New York. Gotcha. And, and what led your parents to be more uh, ahead of their time in that sense? You know, I think it was just like, I should really ask them why they were so focused on it. Mm. I think they just, you know, grew up in the like 70s and 60s and were sort of like came of age at a time when it was cool to act on your beliefs. Mm. And, you know, Seventh Generation was a catalog business in the early days and, you know, attracted a little bit more of that free thinking type, I believe. And I guess they got caught in it and kept using it. And I'm grateful they did, obviously. I'm fascinated by the transition from there to um, kind of your first career was mostly on the investment side before you started Grove, if I, if I understand things currently, correctly. How, how did that happen? So, you know, I went to college and you tried hard, got good grades and didn't really know what I wanted to do after college. And so I did the thing that other people who I knew who had good grades did, which is, you know, when got myself a finance job and that was okay. Learned an incredible amount, got to meet some really wonderful, brilliant people, um, moved out to California to work with an investment firm called TPG, which I think was one of the earliest private equity firms to have a big focus on sustainability, but ultimately, you know, found that I wanted to have more impact than I thought I could have just by working and investing. And so, you know, as a naive and hubrisful 26-year-old, or maybe I was 27, I was like, all right, how hard could it be to start a consumer internet business? And so Grove was born. And that was 2012? 2012, yeah. I'm going to, we're just skipping all over the place, but just a, a couple months ago, it was announced that you've raised a Series D of $150 million um, that puts the company over a billion dollars in valuation um, over the course of, you know, the past seven years or whatever it's been, you know, since you, you started it, like that's a pretty impressive kind of rise. It's a really impressive one, given that you're a, a B Corp where we can go into all of that. But I guess one of the questions that comes to mind is, was, was your experience as an investor useful in starting Grove or how did, how did those two things come together? It's a great question. For me, the experience, it, it, not just as an investor, but in business, helped me understand the business models that succeed and the business models that fail. And I got to the privilege of meeting a lot of really wonderful, successful entrepreneurs and successful executives before ever starting Grove. And so I had a little bit of context for, okay, if you want to scale a commerce business, let's think about working capital upfront because that's going to be really important for cash flow. Let's think about how we build a business that has real 
durable advantages and a competitive moat relative to its competitors. How do I make sure that we're playing in a category that has tailwinds from a long-term growth perspective and not headwinds? And you know, there's a bunch of other you know fairly simple but actually incredibly critical element of basic business strategy that I got a, you know really a crash course in over the first few years of my career. And I think, you know, those are the foundational pieces for me of building the Grove business. You know, that said, there are other pieces where I had literally no background, like product management, engineering, design, brand, marketing, product development. And so just to name a few, you know, over the the last however many years have been really fortunate to bring in an amazing group of people to help me guide the company who have expertise that I don't have. And so I don't think it's necessary to have a business background by any stretch, just to be really good at something and make sure that you know you use that to design the company super deliberately from the very beginning. What um, stage were you involved in investing um, at TPG? So TPG is a big firm. You know, they've owned everything from Burger King to Continental Airlines. I primarily worked on what they called a growth stage. So, you know, 50 to call it $200 million equity checks, um, you know, 50 to half a billion dollars in revenue, usually growing fairly quickly, but not always. And were you an analyst there? What was your role exactly? My title was associate, but basically I was the junior person on all the teams and would build as close a relationship with management as I could to help guide our analysis of the business. And then I had the privilege of building the model, putting together the materials, writing the investment memos, all that stuff, um, you know, with guidance from the senior people on the team. And I will say, you know, there's a, a quote that I like about planning and how the plan itself may not be that valuable, but the planning process is really valuable. And I would say the same is true of writing investment committee memos, right? The memo itself is not that valuable, but the act of writing down a thorough analysis of a company really does teach you, or certainly taught me a lot about how that company worked. And so doing that, you know, dozens of times over several years was a really great way to build fluency and become really numerate in terms of understanding how a business narrative and a set of, and a team combined to create a business outcome. It's a really interesting perspective that you were exposed, you know, at that early age to what it takes to have the right kind of metrics and profile of a, of a company that's going to receive 50 to, you know, $200 million. Were, was there anything about that in terms of building grow from the beginning where you were thinking, at some point, I want to be able to raise that much money or grow the company to, to, to that scale. And so I'm going to need to hit certain things about our revenue or the predictability of the business um, that, that influenced your decisions? It's a great question. I, I tend to think about milestones, and you never, in my experience, really need to see too far beyond the next milestone, right? And so as long as you can hit the next milestone and do so in a way that doesn't totally destroy the company, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you'll be able to get from A to B and B to C and C to D. You don't necessarily need to be thinking about D when you're at A. You, know, you probably learn a lot, at least in my experience, you know, learned a lot between A and B. And so maybe C is in a slightly different place than I expected when I started. And so, you know, 
really do run the have run the business over the last however many years thinking about okay what's the next milestone that we need to hit to go from our current stage to the next stage is that a revenue number is it a profitability number is it a market share for our own brand number is it a sustainability initiative whatever it is how do i get us from where we are today to the next phase and then once we're in that next phase can think about how do i get from that phase to even one level up yeah that makes sense so one thing i was alluding to was the the fact that your b corp we've had several b corps on the show before but you know i don't think any of them have reached such a scale and I'm curious if at any point that um, was a challenge for you or or something that um, raised questions among investors or anything like that. Yeah, it's not something that's really ever, we've thought of ever as a challenge. In a lot of ways, I think of it as an advantage. You know, I think that companies that have clear missions and clear North Stars really do perform better. And so I think being a B Corp and being a mission-oriented business is something that's really honestly been a big advantage for Grove over the last however many years. And I think, you know, certainly there are some investors who look at it and aren't super familiar with the idea of purpose-driven business or conscientious businesses. But I think the most proactive investors or most progressive investors, you know, the type of people that I want to have on our cap table and that I want to be our partners, those folks really, they understand. Like they understand 100% the value of having a business that walks the walk on more than just money being the goal. And I think having a culture that that really has a North Star that's not just financial has huge benefits in terms of attracting the right type of people, people who care about what you're doing, not just in it for the almighty dollar and creating a culture that celebrates things that matter to the user, not celebrating, excuse me, remuneration for the team. And so I think you know, the B Corp is one way to signal that. But in general, I think that, and I, this is an optimistic perspective, but I, I certainly believe that many of the best businesses that get built over the next 20 to 50 years will be ones that have a, a foundation of conscientious principles and, and that that will give businesses like ours a real leg up in attracting the best young, in particular, talent of folks who want to do something you know, want to change the world a little bit in a way that's really, really cool. When it comes to your sustainability initiatives, and we can talk about um, kind of the the range of them, I noticed that there's a very multifaceted approach. You've got on the paper product line that is all around using materials like sugarcane and bamboo to uh, replace paper in toilet paper and paper towels. Um, and you're planting trees on that side. You know, you acquired Sustain, which has its own uh, strategy around the kind of materials. There are other product lines where you're approaching it more from a, how do we reduce the amount of water that's in, you know, these detergents and soaps. And there's a, there's a bunch of other things you can probably <laughs> explain better than I can, but those are some of the things that I've noticed. Um, I'm curious when you go about entering these new CPG categories, how much do you have your priorities at the company level versus at the product or you know department level uh, in terms of what you're going to try and do sustainability wise so the company has a pretty clear vision statement that guides all of this which is that consumer products will be a positive force for human and environmental health and you know it's deliberately 
positive force, not just less negative force. And so that pulls us on a category by category basis to think two ways. First, how do we reduce the impact that we're having? And then second, how do we, I mean, ideally give back to whatever ecosystem has been impacted by that product over time. And so Seedling, which is a brand of tree-free paper that we launched in 2018, is a great example. You know, it starts with the feedstock, which is mostly bamboo, which is a grass that grows five times as quickly as traditional soft, excuse me, <clears throat> grows 30 times as quickly as traditional softwood trees and sequesters five times as much carbon. So much, much more uh, environmentally sustainable feedstock for paper and then saying, okay, well, the paper industry cuts down something like 94,000 trees a day just based on U.S. paper consumption. You know, let's do our part to replant trees in the U.S. in an ecosystem that's really been devastated in many ways by the single-use epidemic um, of which, you know, household paper is a big part. And so that's an example of a category where we've tried to not just be less bad, but actually be more good as well. And so, you know, as we move from category to category across the portfolio, we really do try to think about, okay, if, if this is a category where shipping water is a big part of the impact, how do we lighten the product, right? Take some of the water out and how do we find less plastic packaging? And you know, in a lot of these categories also, right? It's stuff that gets washed down the drain. So how do we make sure it's a plant-based formula that's biodegradable and not something that's petroleum-based and we're going to end up finding it in our water in six months? So, you know, there's a lot of different considerations from one product line to the next, but importantly, they're all really unified by that company vision statement around every category being a positive force for human and environmental health. How deep are you trying to go in terms of life cycle analysis and all that kind of stuff before you put a product out there? Or are you okay with, you know, a incremental improvement and then we can, you know, keep iterating on that once it's in market and we prove that there's demand? I think it always ends up being a balance. And one of my favorite things about the company is the bigger we get, the better we are at serving our mission, right? The more innovative we can be in sustainability because we have more resources. I, I am not one to let perfection stand in the way of progress. And so I believe that you know this problem will get solved through incremental innovations 20 times over 20 years. And it's a natural human tendency to overestimate what can be done in a year, but to really underestimate what can be done in 10 years. And you know, I think of the problems of these categories are, you know, 10 to 20 year problems. It's taken, you know, a hundred years to create them and it'll take probably a decade to unwind them. But I think we're making really good progress so far. Well, this was something, and I don't know if I, if I totally agree with him, but Jeffrey from, from uh, Seventh Generation, when he was on the show, I guess it was episode 88, I just pulled it up, was saying, kind of the opposite. And and I think that I, I felt a certain amount of pain uh, coming from him when he was describing this, but that he really felt that one of the areas he felt he didn't push far enough with seventh generation was on innovation and that a lot of the, the products they sold were 
in many cases, like a, a major improvement over what existed in the market, but wasn't fundamentally like rethinking the entire <laughs> uh, concept of what that product needed to be or whether that product even needed to exist in the first place. I, I, I think maybe I t- tend to side with you a little bit more being more pragmatic, but I think you need kind of a balance of those two things. Just because you're rethinking something doesn't mean you get it right the first time. I think there's this false halo around innovation that just because something is really different means it's better. There are plenty of examples of innovation that were not actually better, right? One of the reasons I believe so much in progress and you know one foot in front of the other is I couldn't tell you exactly the roadmap to get to zero waste in our category from here. Mm-hmm. I know a couple of steps on the journey, I think, but you know, I, I'm not a believer in sort of the like one genius theory. I think it's a bunch of good decisions over time. And I do think that one of the big challenges that seventh generation had no longer exists today in that they don't control their own distribution, right? And so they could come up with something totally different and a big retailer could say, this doesn't fit in our planogram, see ya. That's a great point. For us, because we go directly to the consumer, we can do stuff like roll out our hard surface cleaners in one ounce concentrate instead of 24 ounce bottles. We can do a reusable glass laundry dispenser with concentrated laundry detergent and a bunch of these innovations that are totally foreign to brick and mortar retail, but are better for the consumer, higher quality product, lower cost, lighter environmental footprint, you know, we can, we can just sort of do it without sort of any intermediary. And so I do think the ability to innovate directly to the consumer is an advantage that we have that Jeffrey didn't have in his day. But I think your point about, you know, uh, not getting in your own way is so essential. Um, with, with Lumi, we're, you know, helping, we have kind of a meta level perspective because, Tens of millions of units of packaging are being produced through the platform. And so I feel a great sense of responsibility. I'm back here, like making the technology for all of these companies that are procuring the packaging. And I just feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to try and, you know, make good defaults, push people slightly, you know, in a better direction uh, if we can. And kind of like, I've made the joke before that we're, we're sometimes like a methadone clinic, like we're trying to get people off of like unsustainable patterns in a way that is palatable to the approach. But that, you know, requires like, it's not a holier than thou kind of approach. You kind of have to get your hands dirty and accept that you're going to make some things that probably if we fast forward 10, 20 years in the future, um, we're all going to agree is is crazy and should not exist. And that that part is, I think, challenging, especially when you're part of a mission driven company, because people need to remember the the long term uh, mission. Oh, it's so hard, right? Because if you're a good mission driven business, you have people there who really passionately care, and it's really hard not always being able to do the perfect thing. Right. I mean, it kills me not being zero waste today, but. I believe we've taken a lot of steps in the right direction and we'll get there. And so, you know, it's just one of the many reasons why doing things like certifying as a B Corp every year is important, right? How do you communicate clearly the long-term goal when executing to perfection is, is not possible? Yeah. 
One thing that, and, and I would love to get your take on this, one thing that we find so often, even with companies that are uh, making an effort or have as part of their mission or their charter a sustainability goal, is that they really have analysis paralysis when it comes to making choices, whether it's around packaging or their core products. Um, one of the things that we put out six months or so ago was um, this like glossary of sustainability properties. And they're things that, you know, we've been talking about, uh, you know, renewable materials and certified uh, wood, for example, like FSC, volume reduction, biodegradability, like all of these concepts, trying to define them clearly and help companies use that as a guide for what are they going to prioritize? Um, because a lot of these things are in tension with each other. Like you can get to a much lower uh, volume, let's say, in shipping, but you might not be able to do that in a renewable container yet, right? And so you kind of have to stack rank some of these things and decide which one are we going to prioritize, which one is the one that has the biggest impact, which one feels right to the product and to the brand. And uh, being able to make those priorities seems really, really important, especially for you in the product development uh, phases of of coming up with something. And I wonder how you do that or what you would advise to companies that are really having a hard time prioritizing those different ways to be more sustainable. It's a really hard tension, right? There's never, and there's probably no perfect answer. I'll tell you that the companies who are really pulling on the rope in the right direction, the number one thing that we have to do is get adoption. And so when faced with a choice, obviously analysis paralysis is the worst thing, right? Making a choice and being decisive really important. I think making a choice that drives consumer adoption is often the right one. And the reason I think that, and this is sort of how Grove is oriented also, is you, know, you don't get a lot of converts when you preach to the choir. Yeah. And so in Grove, one of my, the statistics of which I am most proud is that 50% of our consumers are completely new to the category. Mm. Never tried any product, natural products in our category before. So I think you know, if we are all attempting to make our various industries more sustainable, you know, in a country where a lot of people don't necessarily see sustainability as today a part of their decision-making framework, how do we get those folks into the fold and realize that everyone can and should be a conscientious consumer? And, you know, when I tell people that I work at a company that sells sustainable products on the internet, Folks assume that our consumer base is New York, Boston, LA, Chicago, San Francisco, DC. But in practice, we do just as well in Kansas as we do in California. Our three best zip codes are in Utah, Texas, and Tennessee. You know, we have found that to get back to the question, right? If we have if we have to make a choice, you know, never compromise integrity, but also don't forget to prioritize adoption. Because it really does count to making sure that you know, the mission starts to matter on a real scale, not just a micro scale. Yeah, I think that's a really good lens. Yeah, what is going to move the needle from the customer point of view? I think that the other one that I would love to get your take on is how do you organize your team to make those decisions and be able to keep moving quickly? Like, what are you, is there something that you're giving as a mandate to the different people who are trying to do the product development or, or however they're, or the marketing around, you know, how do we describe this thing that we've done that helps them, you know, continue moving quickly in that, in, in, the, in the right direction as opposed to getting that analysis paralysis? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, a great question in general, not just for sustainability-oriented companies. And I think the the bottom line is twofold. The first is having people on your team that you really actually trust and want to trust. You know, the partners that I have at Grove are exceptional, and because of that, almost any decision I would rather have the team running that part of the business make the call instead of me. And I think that culturally has really permeated our organization in a lot of ways and allowed for a real level of autonomous decision-making across the organization. So many parts of business start with people, most important thing without question, and decisive planning and decision-making really starts with having a team that is high trust with each other and of themselves. That's the first piece. The second piece is clarity of mission and strategy. And no matter what we do and how big we get, I find that the return on my time when I'm investing in clarifying our strategy is always that. It's always worth it. People, in my experience, genuinely want to do great work and genuinely want to do work that's aligned to the company's goals. But the company's goals can be really complicated. And so the better job that I can do, or I think an organization's leader can do, communicating out exactly what the company's goals are, and not just financial goals, right? Here are the initiatives we're working on. Here's why we're working on them. Here's how those initiatives line up with our value system and our mission. I think getting that message out clearly to the organization just leads to super high-quality work from across the org. But it takes real time to do that in a high quality way. And I don't want to act like I've mastered it, but I I definitely can see the company benefit when the leadership team does a better job communicating out clearly exactly what the company's goals are and why. Have you ever had a situation where there is backlash from the choir about something that you, you know, pitched out there, sold out there, you know, marketed that people were like, that's you know, not good enough or, you know, the the well actually crowd that will come out. Oh my gosh. We get backlash <laughs> all the time, right? There's a there's a constituency for just about everything out there. Yeah. I mean a great example is the seedling tree free stuff. You know, we get a lot of static from people in the in the logging community. Mm. We're explicitly talking about how logging has negative environmental repercussions. And folks in that community obviously don't respond well to that. And I I will say there are a wide range of logging practices from more sustainable to less. But, you know, we have our strong point of view that uh, tree-free is better than trees from, you know, made from effectively virgin softwoods. And so, yeah, we hear it from those folks. And then at the same time, you know, we had our seedling paper wrapped in a very thin plastic. And a lot of folks really came at us for having pay, you know, a product that had any plastic at all. Even though the impact was materially better than every other product on the market, it wasn't enough for a lot of our consumers. And so we are evolving and we'll be you know, moving towards a plastic-free new version of seedling in the coming years because of feedback from our audience. But I will say, you know, the product has been overall extremely successful. So I'm glad we did it, even though, yeah, we took it on both sides. We took it from the sustainability people for having 
bath tissue wrapped in plastic and we took it from the logging community because we were talking about the environmental impact of virgin paper product. But still worth it. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's definitely always a certain contingent and I think it's in this case really important to to listen to the you know, the customers and what they're saying. There's a certain proportion of your customers who are living in the future. Like they're living in a time where we're we're beyond where we are today. And so they have much higher expectations and in a certain way they're guiding your product development. Um and that's that's great. But you still have to be able to navigate the conversation with them in the present. And I'm curious how you do that. Yeah. And I think living in the future is a nice way to put it. You know, one of my favorite business lessons is that imperfection is inevitable. And the more I learn to just accept imperfection, the better I seem to get at my job and the more I seem to enjoy it. And so I think using our community and the feedback that they give us as a, a North Star for what we do from a product development perspective and really from a company perspective is always super valuable. But at the same time, I think it's totally sang- okay to be sanguine about the fact that we're going to launch an initiative and it's going to be just okay. Uh, <laughs> and you know, sometimes <laughs> yeah. it'll be awesome, but you, you know, sometimes you there are fires burning at the office and we can only control what we can control and we have to prioritize and understand that we can't put every single fire out every single day, just the most important ones. The notion of not going out there and just saying this is the greatest thing since sliced bread is also one way to sort of (laughs) maybe make something that is objectively better without kind of enraging the people who are living in the future, let's say. Yeah, and I don't think those folks are enraged, right? I think they genuinely just want us to be better. Yeah, what... Yeah, they're pushing you more so than, and and I think people companies that have higher standards also have much higher expectations from their customer, and that can be a challenge. Exactly, it's a lot of it's about what kind of brand you create to your consumer, right? If the brand message is "We are awesome, we are perfect," gosh, you know your consumer is going to expect you to really be perfect. If the brand message is one of not judgment. We're all doing our best. We want to be really inclusive. People are going to be a lot more warm in the way they respond. And you know, the company's mission statement has to do with creating homes that reflect the best of ourselves. It's not create homes that are perfect, right? What does that even, what does that even mean? But it's really about every person knows what the best of him or herself means. I should say himself, herself, or themselves. Every, every individual knows what that best version of themselves means. I think having a, a, a more earnest and non-judgmental tone and genuinely you know, trying to get better means that our community is more understanding than they otherwise would be. And I'm really grateful for it. A mentor said to me when I was first starting Grove was that if you run a conscientious business, you will attract conscientious partners and conscientious customers which will always make it better when things are both going well and when things are going badly. And I have really found that to be true. I've seen you say that you're trying to um, grow Grove to be a 100-year company. I have, I have a lot of thoughts and questions about that, but what, what does that mean to you? It means to me that we have an obligation to think long-term. I think that a lot of an obligation and an opportunity to think long-term. I think a lot of the problems in society are caused by short-term thinking from 
issues in the way environmental policy gets done to the way that companies prioritize things that matter today at the expense of the long term. And I think if we position ourselves, you know, 100 years, obviously kind of an arbitrary number, but it's beyond our lifetime, right? Like I'm not going to be here in 100 years. It's like, it's about what kind of legacy my company leaves, right? Like what, what do we want this company to stand for 100 years from now? And do we stand for having prioritized profit over consumer consumer and environmental health. God, I hope not, right? I hope that we're a company that says, look, we understand the writing on the wall and we're willing to do the hard work to align consumer and environment in a way that hasn't happened and health, honestly, in our category in a way that hasn't happened and might be really hard. And maybe the efforts to do that won't hit the P&L this year or next year, but that we believe that's where the industry has to go and so we're going we're gonna to work on that, even at the expense of short-term profit. Yeah. And I think I've been advocating for this. And people, I don't know why. I, I feel like uh, I get a snicker every time I, I talk about uh, things on that timescale. I don't, it just, to me, it seems very obvious that we should be thinking that way, that a lot of the most important goals that we have as a society take multiple generations to accomplish. And and at the same time, <laughs> when I'm at the office, half the time I'm the guy who's like, how can we ship this faster? It's a difficult dichotomy for people to understand, it seems. But I think something needs to change, at least in Western society, about how we think about time, I guess, and how we think about the impacts that we will have. You know, we're in a very political time period right now. But I think a lot of the conversation that is happening under the surface is a conversation about short-term versus long-term thinking. But it's not really addressed in that way. And it seems it seems like, <laughs> especially for, you know, younger, anyone who's below the age of 40 should be trying to think about that. Or people who have kids and grandkids should be thinking about that. I think everybody should be trying to think about it. I think and, and I will say, I don't think that urgency and long-term thinking are mutually exclusive. There's a great quote I love, which is, never put off to tomorrow that which can be done today. Yeah. And like, if you can ship that product today, like, ship it. Um, totally an advocate for ship today. But I think that the challenge, to a certain extent, and this is, you know, well beyond the area where I'm qualified to speak, is often that folks need need to know that their immediate needs are taken care of to be able to think long-term. Mm, that's a great point. And that's one of the reasons why I talk about it as a privilege. I've, we've only recently started talking about building a 100-year company. For a little while, it was like, oh my God, we just got to like live another day, right? right? It took us four years to raise our Series A. I'll tell you, two and a half years in, we were running out of money and I was like, lending the company money to cover payroll. I wasn't like talking about building a 100-year company. I was like, we got to get to that next milestone kind of now. But at this point, the business is big enough and stable enough where we get to choose what kind of company we're going to be. You know, whether we grow 30%, 50%, 80%, 100% next year, all of those are great. And it's just a question of, okay, well, we have a lot of different opportunities in front of us. Let's pick a path that doesn't optimize for outcome in two years. Let's pick a path that optimizes for outcome in 100 years. And that's a really privileged way to be able to think. 
I say it's privileged because I spent the better part of the last seven years, seven and a half years working on this company. And for you know 80% of the company's life cycle, we couldn't think long-term like that. But now that we can, I, I do think it'll be an advantage. Yeah. And, and I think that that is true for companies and for people. I mean, it, it's the... There's a there's a Maslow's hierarchy that is uh, the Maslow's hierarchy for companies. I'm guessing um, exactly. I, I appreciate that a lot of people, um, you know, in in America are are in uh, the the lower brackets of Maslow's uh, hierarchy, and so they're they're trying to solve a problem that's much more fundamental. Yeah, I mean, said explicitly, right? If you don't know how to pay for food for your kids tomorrow. It's totally unreasonable to expect that person to be thinking about their single-use plastic consumption. Yeah. Right? Like, got to put food on the table. And that obviously goes to a lot of deeper societal issues, which are outside of the scope of what a consumer product CEO should venture to talk about. But I, th- I think, I think you, you, know, you really hit it that it is a privilege to be able to, to think then more than just either for yourself or your company's survival another 48 hours. One area that some people could be skeptical about is the fact that you've taken, you know, a significant amount of funding into the company is going to, to some extent, require some big returns. And whether you sell the company or go public or something, you know, if you are able to give liquidity to your to your investors, it's probably going to be in a context that doesn't necessarily prioritize the long term. What would be your answer to that? I would say two things. The first is that I believe in capitalism as a force for good. I think that business can be one of the most powerful change agents in the world, and it has to be. Business is one of the foundational organizing principles of the world today, and so it has to be a positive force to help solve the problems that exist today. It's not an option of well, is it or is it not? It just has to be. Businesses need capital to expand, and that's never going to not be true. I think it's about what kind of capital the best businesses want to bring in. And we've been deliberate from the beginning about bringing in folks who support the right kind of growth and building the right kind of company and who understand the importance of mission alignment, not just today, but tomorrow and over the very long term. And I think, you know, as an independent company, be it public or private, we obviously have a huge ability to have impact. Even just, you know, the company is the reason why I get to talk to you and your incredible audience gets to listen. Thank you all. And hopefully think, gosh, maybe conscientious sort of like business decision making is not incompatible with massive business success. Maybe it actually helps that in a way that's really cool. And I would say when it comes to liquidity, right? Like I said, as an independent company, public or private, you can have a big impact. But I think that the smartest business minds around the world are all waking up to the fact that the consumer is starting to care a lot about the kinds of companies that he or she or they buy from. And I think a small business like ours, if we were to to join forces with a larger one, which is not something that's in the works anytime soon you know, would have a lot to offer that larger company in terms of how to become as sustainability-minded as possible. Because mm. I think the consumer is going there. If people are focused on plastic waste today, they'll be double or triple as focused on it in three or four years. And I think we are just in the beginning of a long-term trend towards consumers caring a lot more about who the companies they buy from are. 
do you have a point of view on on what okay let's say that happens like flash forward however many years maybe 20 years maybe 50 years like if that happens what what does capital capitalism look like in the future what would be you're doing a lot of things that you think should be the norm so if they were the norm what would that be like I think we're moving there today, right? There's a lot of different ways that it's happening. You can see consumers putting money in ESG funds. I mean, a lot of this stuff comes from us, right? The consumer economy is the largest part of the economy. But consumer and business decision makers just have the ability to change the sea uh, on this one. And I think if you're a consumer and you have the opportunity to buy from a B Corp, buy from a B Corp. If you're a consumer and you have the opportunity to do research on the companies you're considering buying from this holiday season, right? You you have the opportunity to buy products from lots of different companies. Yeah. In a way that wasn't possible 20 years ago, you can go to that company's about page, read what their mission is, see what they're doing from a sustainability perspective, and make an informed decision. And this is like, you know, tip of the iceberg on this stuff. And that's going to drive companies to care a lot more than they ever had. I mean, if you look across many of the biggest businesses, they're like, we're going to be carbon neutral in 10 years or plastic free or whatever it is. They're actually investing in sustainability for the first time because their customers are pressuring them. If you're a small business owner or a larger business owner, right, you have a lot of power over your suppliers to tell them to have ethical business practices, to stop using single-use product. An easy thing we do when we get catered meals, we insist that we have zero single-use product at all of our catering. Zero, we're a zero single-use office, right? And so like that forces our catering partners to think differently about how they deal with companies that want zero single-use in an industry that's created a lot of waste and super small impact. But across when more businesses start to do that, it'll change that industry. So I think the groundswell is happening, I believe, on this. So I think it's it's not a not a fairy tale that consumer and business leaders will push will push businesses to be more conscientious over the next couple of decades in a way that's really powerful and that the businesses that can't evolve will die. Yeah. The <laughs> the rest of my questions go definitely you know along this uh along this line go definitely into the realm of uh, uh things that we're probably not qualified to talk about but would be fun to discuss over a beer. Um <laughs> I mean, shoot if you want to. I'm you know, clearly I'm out over my skis here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I think it's I think uh, a lot of these things are are really really important and I think I, I, that is what we're seeing at Lumi on a meta level from all of you know our brands that that work with us and 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 that's kind of the nature of what I was asking before because they're all saying to Lumi like hey all of our customers are asking us about how sustainable our packaging is and we don't know it puts a lot of responsibility on us but it's a really fun problem to solve for and I hope that you know if people ask that question more and more it will create the right. Um, the right kind of discussion within within the the business itself that can actually um, make a change. So, I want to close the loop on the sustain acquisition and kind of what you're thinking with that. I also saw um, you acquired a company called Darby Smart, and I'm actually quite familiar with them because they, in a previous life, they uh, were a retailer of a product that I made uh, <laughs> at my previous company. Uh, Nicole Farb, who is the founder of Darby Smart, is running um, a new business unit for you called Roven. 
I'm really fascinated to hear a little bit about your thesis around acquisition and what you're hoping for for Sustain and, and for Roven. So it's a great question, and I think that M&A can be a really valuable part of the toolkit for a growing company because there are a lot of amazing businesses out there like Darby Smart and Sustain that have different DNA than you know your company or our company had. And the addition of those two companies, not just sort of like the thing they did, but actually the way they did business has been really valuable to Grove. You know, there are, uh, those two business lines are, are different, but similar in that each of them brings a different thing to the consumer than what we had offered before, right? Sustain obviously brings expertise in natural period, natural period care and sexual wellness, which is a category we, we did not have any expertise in. And Rovin is an entry into the clean beauty space, which shares a lot of foundational dynamics with natural home and personal care, which is our sort of like core existing business, but also has a lot of really different nuances. And so, you know, the Darby Smart acquisition allowed us to, again, move into a category where without Nicole and that team's capabilities, we, we probably wouldn't have been able to do it in a high quality way as quickly. And so, you know, I think we will continue to be active acquirers of really exceptional businesses that have strong teams or products that can be additive to what we bring to the consumer. Well, it definitely helps to have um, cash in the bank to to be able to do that. Is that one of the big reasons you uh, raise money? It's one of the reasons. I think that relying on acquisition is a dangerous thing. Like relying on M&A is a dangerous thing because you don't control the destiny there. Like I can't control what's happening at a company that I may want to partner with. So it's definitely one of the reasons to raise capital. But for us, I think it's, you know, we're not banking on being able to find and partner with the next sustainer, Darby Smart, in order to, to see our goals. Those are two exceptional companies that we were really, really fortunate to welcome to the Grove family. Well, how do you think about the brands and how they all kind of relate as a family? Is it a portfolio ultimately in, in the long term, the way that C the traditional CPGs operate? Or do you imagine, which ones do you imagine folding into the Grove brand? How do you think about that? I think it's different than in the traditional CPG model because in the traditional CPG model, they're all sold on a third-party brick-and-mortar store shelf, right? And so because we own our own distribution, we can be a little bit more explicit about where we have conviction in the innovation story and why we're moving into a category like Roven and be just more direct with our consumer about where we are the manufacturer and where other people are. That's really cool and really wonderful. And another positive element of the direct consumer business model, we're able to bring more value to our customers in a way that's that's really direct. You know, if we were a business that sold dish soap on shelf and we decided, gosh, we should really get into the dish towel business, when that's sold in a totally different part of the store, potentially a different retailer even, you know, how do you connect those two? But in practice, you know, you kind of use the dish towel right after the dish soap. And so we can be really explicit in adding more value to the consumer's Grove experience because of the way that we go to market and the inherent interconnectedness of all the brands in the, in the single distribution platform. 
like on our website. Yeah, I'm really curious. I I would love to get someone from Walmart on the podcast because they've been experimenting with a lot of strategies ever since they purchased Jet.com and you know have purchased a lot of uh, direct-to-consumer businesses over the past few years, um, like uh, Bonobos and, and a few others. And I'm just so curious to, to know how well that's working in terms of having all of these different separate units operating independently. It's very different than the Amazon approach, which is just like, let's integrate everything into the main Amazon.com experience and like the search bar on Amazon.com has to be like the place where people find everything. But the strategies have very different implications and outcomes in terms of what does the customer experience look like. And I don't know if you have a take on that. I think different companies will have different approaches. And so I, I can't speak to Amazon or Walmart. I will say for us, I think, you know, being able to to be clear about what a single brand stands for has a real benefit. So, you know, making, just to use the seedling example again, it's important that has its own brand because the equity there really is in tree-free paper, which is a different story than our Rooted Beauty natural personal care line, mm. which is much more about the ingredients. And so, you know, being able to tell concrete stories in a distinct way is a useful way to, for the consumer to understand what the brands stand for quickly and a useful way for the company to invest into different but very important consumer value propositions at the same time. Right. Do you consider yourself in competition with Amazon? Not really. I think that over the long term, you know, our goal is to change the consumer products industry. And so I think anyone who can be a partner to us in doing that, we are we think more about how do we partner with folks to change what the consumer products industry looks like as it transitions from offline to online. And so you know, we are, are, the second word in our name is collaborative. And I think we really do take that approach to the ecosystem because I think the level of change that's needed in our category and in society, frankly, means we're all going to have to work together. Well, I know that the sustain condoms are sold on Amazon. So it's like, would you consider you know, selling more things, more Grove family products on Amazon, or is it more that long-term you expect to remove them from there and kind of avoid them having visibility on how your business is doing? I think, you know, look, we'll think about it and make decisions over time, but my bias is to see them as a partner Mm. um, because they obviously have a ton of audience there, a ton of folks that we can reach. And if someone has the choice between buying a sustain period care sexual wellness product or a conventional one, I'd really always rather have them buying sustain if that's from Grove or from Amazon. This has been so fascinating. I have so many more questions for you. I think that we'll have to do a part two at some point, but I want people to uh, go check out Grove. I saw that you're hiring a bunch. What are the big areas that you're looking for at Grove these days and what are what makes a great Grove teammate? So I we're hiring kind of across we're hiring across geographies and across roles. Um, Grove.co backslash careers. I'm obviously biased, but think it's a great place to work. The thing that makes someone successful at Grove is a combination of integrity, passion for the mission, kindness, and I would say intellectual curiosity. The atmosphere is kind of like studying for a test with your friends. It's like, it's important, 
but we all know it's not life or death. And there's the sense that if we succeed, we all succeed together. And, you know, you genu- genuinely, at least I'll speak for myself, I genuinely just love the people that I work with. And that makes it a lot of fun. So uh, if you're interested in joining a high growth company that wants to change the world, we're certainly looking for, for more great mission-driven people. Awesome. Yeah. Grove.co slash careers. Anything else you want to point people to? I think that's, I think that's it. I would say just in general, right? Like don't forget that every single decision matters. And, you know, I think Grove is, is one of many companies doing things that move the world in a positive direction. And, and nobody ever knows who's going to be the single deciding vote that changes the direction of an industry, et cetera. And so I would just say it's, it's a lot of fun to work in a business that where I have conviction that we're on the right side of the line there. And I'm so grateful for all of the amazing consumers out there who've given Grove a shot and who make good decisions with their purchasing habits every day. Well, thank you, Stu. This has been uh, so insightful and best of luck. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to part two. Ooh, one last thing before we go. I'm talking to you at home. What's your favorite brand these days? Is there something that you think is really well-made or maybe someone that you'd love for me to talk to? Send us a tweet. We are at Lumi, L-U-M-I on Twitter. We're making this show for you. So tell us what you want to hear and we'll make it happen. Thanks. See you next time.